This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Manu Sardia. Hi Manu, how are you? How are you? I'm good, I'm good. We're, you know, still in lockdown over here. I don't know what the situation is uh, where you are in LA. Is it um, nice weather but you can't quite enjoy it? Or No, nominally, you know, I mean, we've been able to take walks around the neighbourhood for the duration, so it wasn't that bad. I mean, considering. Yeah, we've had that for a while. Now we're sort of at the point where any pretense of lockdown seems to be crumbling slightly, whether it's the weather or we've had this big political scandal recently. Yes, so I've heard. So I've heard. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it seems to have uh, undermined kind of uh, people's willingness. Interestingly, actually, given some of the stuff we might come to talk about, people's willingness to kind of do the right thing uh, for the collective seems to have gone out the window as soon as they found out one person wasn't doing it. You have one bad egg and it seems to kind of affect everyone's behaviour. It seems that um, modelling good behaviour matters. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is why we need Star Trek. This is why we need, you know, Captain Picard and and everyone, pretty much everyone in Star Trek, mostly, I'd say, models pretty good behavior. I must say we have our problems over here in the United States as well. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's, it does certainly <laughs> seems like I don't think our two nations are necessarily leading the way just at this precise moment or possibly ever to be honest but um yeah it's an interesting moment anyway um and things change this things yeah. change. <laughs> they do <laughs> they certainly do um well what we're going to talk about today um really is this idea of treconomics manu you wrote a fantastic book called treconomics looking at really i suppose the economics of star trek and it's something just before we started recording, I sort of said as a caveat, I uh, kind of history, literature, these are kind of areas that I feel vaguely comfortable with. Economics, I've always had a bit of a terror of, I think partly because I just feel like, you know, I struggle to sort of, you know, keep track of my incomings and outgoings and kind of (laughs) manage a household budget. So the idea of these kind of huge, you know, economic phenomena uh, slightly appalls me in a way. But I am very interested in this idea of what it is about the economics of the Star Trek universe that kind of hold that reality together, because clearly, um, certainly from kind of next generation onwards, 
there is a kind of statement being made about the economic reality within the Federation, at least. And that very much ties into these kind of ethical, moral uh, questions and, and to the, the possibility of this utopia that we see in Star Trek. Absolutely. I mean, um, I, I started writing the book partly because I was very surprised that uh, such a, a, a major part of the Star Trek universe um, seemed to, to rely on the political and economic structures that, that undergird the Federation. And there was nothing about it or very little. So I, I sort of, uh, I, I, I took it upon myself to um, try to figure out what was going on there. Uh, and, and, it's interesting because you, you mentioned TNG uh, at the beginning, and, and it's true that it becomes more fully formed as a as a vision of uh, society and and the the way uh, what people call you know quote unquote post scarcity economics. So so it becomes much more formed and and it come into its own uh, around the time of Star Trek: The Next Generation uh, beforehand. Uh, in, in the original series, you have mentions of credits and, you know, uh, the crew spending their, their credits on shore leave and things like that. So it's not yet, um, entirely, uh, uh, um, on display the way it is, uh, in the next generation. The next generation takes a much more, uh, I would say, uh, forward uh, way of showing the inner workings of society. Uh, so, so that that was something that really struck me. By the way, uh, when when you compare the two series, it's it's the amount of discussion, open discussion in the next federation of uh, the economic realities and and the political arrangements. That derive from them, you know, in the in the twenty fourth century federation. So, um, this is this is how I um, this is how I, I tackled the thing. Like, uh, the, there's a real break. Uh, I don't know if it's an in universe break, really, or uh, but maybe it is. It's, it's never really hinted at. Uh, but there's a real difference between the the first uh, incarnation of the series. And, and the second, uh, so, and then, you know, it gets sort of, uh, discussed and, and, and it gets expanded in Deep Space Nine afterwards, uh, where, where there again, you know, because of the figure of the Ferengis, you, you get a sort of a, you get a foil to highlight, uh, the, the, the way the Federation does, for instance, doesn't use money, you know, and, and, uh, even though the officers on Deep Space Nine have to use money, but that's a different story. So yes, so that's how I, I, I looked at it. There, there's a real epistemic break there. I guess, I mean, aside from the question of whether this is an in-universe break, and I think in some ways it is, because I'd always sort of thought of the economics of Star Trek as pretty inconsistent, but I think your book makes a pretty strong case for it actually being relatively uh, consistent in some ways. And, and the more we have kind of prequels coming in and so on, the more actually it does seem to kind of fit together. But obviously in the real world, there's an element that to posit a society without money in the 1960s um, in a, you know, American TV show 
is potentially a slightly risky thing to do. And I was fascinated. You dug out from the original show Bible of the original series, a line that Gene Roddenberry wrote, basically saying, we won't say one way or the other whether capitalism or communism triumphed ultimately. In other words, you, you know, which of these kind of economic ideologies won? <laughs> we won't mention it. But but even saying that in the context of the Cold War is pretty bold thing to do to to have that left ambiguous in a sense. And then obviously by the time next gen comes around, the Cold War is kind of really, you know, coming towards an end in a sense. Um, and certainly maybe the stakes are slightly different for uh, imagining a future where money might have gone the way of the dinosaurs in that way. And the way, you know, you slide from, from this sort of, we're not going to engage, even though they do engage in the original series, but they're like, we're not going to engage in a discussion of the Cold War uh, to, because that's what's at stake here, uh, to being openly, you know, socialist uh, uh, is, is kind of a very interesting move. And, uh, you know, the, the, the next generation was developed over the seventies as, uh, the next phase, I think. Uh, and so some of the, the early, uh, early episodes were already written and they had to retool them and all that. But the, the, the premiere in 87, it's still, you know, like it's, it's on the heels of the, uh, the crash of 87 and, uh, it's still kind of the cold war, cold war. Like it, I don't, I mean, you know, I'm old, so I remember that, but like in 1987, nobody had any inkling or idea that the, the, the wall would fall in, you know, two years later. Like that was not even within the realms of possibilities. Uh, so, so they're, 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 Building that in the context of a cold war, they're, they're turning it up a notch, I think. And what, what's interesting, and I talk about this in the book, is the condition of the conditions in which they produced the next generation where Gene Roddenberry, uh, and his crew basically had complete free reign over what they were going to do because they were going to sell it directly to TV stations in the US. The, the way the market is set up in the US is you have the networks. They control several stations and either you sell your shows to the networks, which then distribute to the TV stations they have relationships with, or you go straight to the local TV stations. And so that's what they did, which um, bypassed all the process whereby the studio will, the, the first the studio, but then the networks will give you notes on and will ask you for changes on what it is that you're putting out as a show. So Gene Roddenberry and I remember in the in the 60s they had a lot of problems with NBC that because of the context at the time and the Vietnam War. Um and they would get notes all the time about, you know, what not to say, what to say, what not to say, the audience won't like it, blah blah blah. So Gene Roddenberry in the 80s decided to create really a new business model for uh, the distribution of genre TV. Uh, and now it's become very, um, very much the norm. I mean, not the norm, but selling shows directly to syndication, as they call it, uh, is, is something that is much more normal these days. Um, and the deal they made was uh, they would only give you next generation if you showed you know as a bundle with the original series 
And so you would get in the 80s, you would get the, you know, an episode of the original series and now the next generation. Uh, and it would like run in two hours blocks, you know, usually right after school, uh, on local TV stations. And, and the way they did it was the TV stations could keep the advertising revenue from the original series, but the advertising from the next generation would go straight to the producers. So, and, and, and the networks would not have a hand in it in any way, shape or form. So in a way, it was a declaration of independence and it actually worked out. Uh, and so this independence from, from the, the gatekeepers, uh, at the network really determined the kind of stuff they could put on the show. Uh, and so at the end of the first season in the neutral zone, uh, you have Picard, uh, giving these very beautiful and, you know, uh, um, articulate speech about, uh, how we have grown out of our infancy and money and the accumulation of things is no longer the driving force in our lives. Um, and, you know, I mean, this is pretty bold in that sense, but it's a result also of that independence from, uh, the networks. That's a very interesting point, I suppose. And obviously, with the original series, there was that kind of tension. I mean, there were episodes that were not aired in certain... Um, and Roddenberry had had this before with his previous shows. One of the reasons he ended up doing Star Trek was to kind of get away from that sort of independence. Yeah, it was like, let's let's do it in space, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, it strikes me when you say he'd, he'd come up with this new model of selling it... Uh, it reminds us that Roddenberry, as well as being this quite idealistic man in terms of his vision of the future, was quite a canny capitalist in the real world. I mean, you know, famously, he set up this Lincoln Enterprises to flog merchandise. And there's that scene with the idiot, you know, the yes. first time the idiot comes into Star Trek is basically as a kind of merchandising opportunity. And some of the actors were not... um happy about the way that the scripts were being written around this kind of merchandising. And even actually going back to the very beginning, the, the, you know, the Star Trek, the original series, Star Trek music, um, I think not a lot of people realized there were actually lyrics, which were never put on screen to that song. It you know, it was a song because Roddenberry realized if he wrote lyrics to Alexander Courage's music, then he could claim 50% of the royalties, uh, for that piece of music, essentially by calling it a song rather than, you know, an instrumental piece. So he's, I mean, in many ways, I think a fascinatingly kind of contradictory character, but when it comes to economics, uh, it, that is there as well, you know, that there's a kind of an idealism in principle. And then there's a kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> slightly grubby reality of like, okay, what can I, you know, how can I make a buck out of this? It's the world we live in. I mean, it's the world we live in and it's entertainment. Uh, so, you know, you have to live with that contradiction. And uh, yeah, Roddenberry, you know, he, he was very good at that. Uh, it, it's, I mean, in a way, I find it kind of remarkable that nonetheless, uh, he, he really worked to emphasize the idealistic side of it rather than, you know, giving us yet another, you know, nitty gritty, uh, grim and dark show in space where people, just uh, act and react exactly the way they act and react in our current world. So it takes a real effort of imagination, uh, and and I I thought that was a that's that's part of the thing that really fascinates me about you know the economics of Star Trek really. It's because it's this um, 
uh, thought experiment on how people would behave in a world that's terminally improved uh, and 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 where uh, abundance is the norm and um, in, in a sense where everybody has won the lottery by the time they're born. So it, it's a very interesting um, thought experiment about what do you do then? What's the, what's the meaning of life? If there is no um, compulsion to accumulate uh, objects and wealth so as to sustain yourself. Uh, I mean, and not even wealth, you know, just, just to survive where you have to sell your labor just to survive. Um, so, and so I find that uh, quite bold, in fact. Uh, regardless, I mean, you know, or not regardless, but it's, it's quite bold, especially because at the same time, a lot of these people, they're, they're Hollywood, you know, entertainment capitalists. Like they, they're, they're usually, uh, talking in millions. Like that, that's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very strange and, uh, in a way beautiful in its contradiction. It's, it's very beautiful in its contradiction. Uh, and it's also remarkable that you ended up having, you know, six years, six seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation on primetime TV, extremely popular. Seven, I think. Uh, in America during the Cold War. And, you know, it's interesting because I was also uh, reading about, like, there's this one episode uh, that was banned in Ireland because of, you know, they, they make a mention of by 2024. No, in Britain. It was, it was in, in Britain. Britain. Oh, it was in I Britain. I don't know whether it was, it probably was shown in Ireland. Yeah. About the reunification. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, the BBC wouldn't show it. <laughs> wow. So, so, you know, they're still controversial even then. So I think it takes some effort. That's an interesting, interesting point, actually. Yeah. I mean, no one objects to the idea of a united earth. I mean, even in the original series, you've got before it's Starfleet, you've got the United Earth Space Probe Agency or whatever they call it in some of those early episodes. But obviously the idea of a united island. God forbid the Republic. (laughs) (laughs) But um, (laughs) it's interesting what you were saying about this kind of this idea. It it is very much sort of idealized society. I mean, people argue back and forth whether the Federation is a utopia or not and what your kind of definition of utopia is. But it's certainly a very optimistic view of the future. And it is one, I think you're right, where work appears to be optional you know you could choose you get the sense people people are doing people are following a calling rather than you know no one is working to earn a wage on the other hand there's this kind of interesting tension i mean you talk in your book about the sense that we only see star trek through the lens of this kind of minority of very driven very kind of uh alpha personalities basically who want to go out and do stuff all the time be very busy but even going all the way back to the cage and you know it's something that repeats throughout star trek uh many many times over is this idea of this sort of tension between the kind of active life out in space and the cozy gentle sort of almost retirement so in the cage you've got pike basically longing to pack his job in and go and you know have picnics with a horse and kind of kind of live this life which you get again even in generations you get kirk basically facing the same dilemma does he live in the nexus and uh, basically in this eternal retirement or does he go back and do something meaningful and kind of um you know useful and productive uh and it's a real tension by that point you've got kirk sort of saying why should i come and save the galaxy i don't want to you know i want to fry my eggs but but it's true also that um Maybe the meaningful and productive life is not necessarily the one in space. It's meaningful and productive to our eyes. Uh, and also, you know, there's, there's sort of meta commentary about 
we need to get these characters to actually act like characters in a 20th century TV show whereby they are heroic and they perform great deeds and they are here to for the edification of the audience. Um, and so, so we get this sliver of that world that resembles ours much more than the rest. I mean, there would be no drama and no show. I mean, I, I, my, my guess, my best guess is that in any utopia, drama is of no, no longer has any, uh, holds, no longer holds any interest to the public because there's nothing to be learned from spectacles. Uh, the, the meaningful and productive life is the one where you're, you're more or less a, on a pilgrimage to discover yourself. And maybe that means doing nothing. Maybe that means doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, maybe that means learning a lot. Maybe that means just, you know, living your life on Risa, uh, looking at the sun and uh, feeling the waves lick your feet. Uh, there, there's no, there's no heroism in Utopia. And so as a result, there are no stories to be told. Uh, in the way we tell those stories today. Um, and we tell those stories today precisely because we live in a capitalist society. And uh, that's how it is. That is our culture. The, the, our culture and our imaginations and our um, ethical uh, or horizons are bounded by the material life we create. Um, so... It's very hard. I mean, it's very hard. I think it's Frederick Jameson who once said that it's easier to uh, imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. Uh, and, and that's kind of a, that, that's kind of a transient observation. Uh, it's very hard to think beyond the, the a priori of your social experience. Uh, it's very hard to think like another. Uh, and so, so, this is also something that is very profound in the next generation and that fascinated me and, and kind of prompted me to write the book is that really the otherness of the characters, even though they're quite closer to us as people and, you know, and, and they act heroically. Uh, but it's interesting that in the next generation, most of the characters are all Vulcans. They're extremely collected and uh, logical and cool and equanimous in a way that um, hot-headedness hot-headedness is not something that is sought after um, they're not humans they're 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 not humans like us that's the thing they're they're just not humans and uh they're inhuman they're alien they are the aliens it's the humans who are the aliens uh, in the next generation. And so, so that way of presenting humans as aliens, essentially, uh, is, is, is a, is a nice, uh, uh, door into creating a different imagination of what the human condition could be. But it's hard because, uh, it's, it's also, it's, it's, it's an incredible feat, in fact. To, to maintain that line for seven seasons, to maintain it through, you know, many writers and all that and be consistent and remain consistent. And it's a controversial 
element within Star Trek. I mean, I think Star Trek's always had this kind of tension. The next-gen writers were always complaining about Roddenberry's box, as they called it, you know, these constraints put on them to not have conflict between the core characters, when obviously the original series was built on conflict between the core characters. I mean, do you call Bones and Spock and 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 Kirk having conflicts or more... Uh... You know, I mean, that's also another debate, but well, you're right. Like the, the, what's interesting is that the writers, they hate that. They hate that stuff. Uh, because, uh, they, they, you know, they are workers, the writers, like they draw a salary and they draw, you know, whatever income from, uh, applying their trade. And their trade is to tell stories of conflict and heroism and, and, and then they go into that job where they tell you, no, 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 you're, we're, we're doing it differently here. Um, so it goes against the trade as well. And it goes against the traditions of the trade. Kind of storytelling yes. more generally. I mean, I, I kind of am familiar with this because I write books based on ordinary people's lives, you know, basically interviewing people and finding out their, their stories, basically, and then weaving those stories together. And I'm quite aware of... <laughs> it's a kind of, it's almost like there's a devil on my shoulder when you're talking to someone. If they tell you about something terrible that happened to them, your kind of part of you is thinking, okay, this is good. This is interesting. This is dramatic. When you have someone <laughs> where everything worked out. I mean, I did a book a few years ago, uh, about British women who married Americans who were here during the war. And I interviewed about a hundred of these women. Wow. Um, and the fact is lots of them, they met great guys. They had a lovely marriage. Everything, you know, their life worked out great. And you're sitting there doing the interview and I'm sort of thinking, I'm not going to really be able to use this because once they get to America, nothing, nothing interesting happens to them. You know, where's the drama? So there is that element. The, 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 the writer's instinct is to look for conflict, to look for drama, to look for problems. Obviously, the utopian thinker, it wants to get past all of that. You know, if you want to, to live in this kind of post-scarcity utopia, you don't want problems. You don't want shortages. You don't want whether there's shortages of goods or shortages of kind of, goodwill in a sense uh you want to be past all of that and it seems like star trek has always vacillated in some ways between those two extremes even with something like picard or with deep space nine people complain oh this is too gritty uh we don't like the way these characters are behaving and then there's a kind of pull back in the other direction towards the more kind of idealized you know uh this is starfleet we all do the right thing kind of attitude star trek's always sort of walked that line i suppose it is a show at war with itself in a way and it's a universe at war with itself because um the the i I had this funny moment recently where i think it was michael chabon discussing picard on on you know the show on, on on some social media and um he said, well, if you're interested in the economics of Star Trek, you might as well just read Trickonomics, but this is not what we're doing. This is not what we're doing. It doesn't work. In the real world, it doesn't work, which, which is funny because of course, in the real world, it doesn't work. This is not the real world, you know, so the, the real world he was, um, pointing to, in fact, is, is the real world of the writers where you need drama, uh, and it's interesting because when you look at the history of science fiction, you know, you'd think science fiction should be or would be the place where utopia uh, would flourish. You know, well, uh, utopia is in- practically inexistent in science fiction. Inexistent. I mean, at the, at the, at the exception of, you know, um, a few famous, you know, the, the Strugatsky brothers and then Utopia is the minority in science fiction. 
It's not because precisely because of the writing trade and because the writing, the right as as a writer, you you write to entertain people, and the way you entertain people is drama and heroism and overcoming the drama and the hero's journey, and it's always the same story told in an infinite amount of of variations, but it's essentially always the same story. Uh, And it's for edification. So, and, and, and catharsis. There, there is no catharsis to be gained, uh, in utopia or, or in utopian writing. Uh, it's, it's, it's more of a sort of like leisurely stroll through a very nice world that is out of reach. Um, so there's that. The, the, the other interesting part is the history of science fiction itself. Um, You could argue that it, 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 science fiction emerged as a genre and as a sort of a practice, a literary practice against utopia. Uh, and that is something that I find, uh, quite a, a provocative, uh, idea. And, uh, I'm still trying to figure out whether this is a correct hypothesis or not, but it seems to bear out. Um, and in a way, science fiction mirrors the trajectory of socialist ideas whereby um, utopian socialists were displaced by the sort of um, the Marxists and the materialists and, and scientific socialism. So, so there's a kind of a mirror there between science fiction and utopian fiction and utopian socialism and scientific socialism. Uh, so that's in the history of idea. It's a small thing, um, but it is nevertheless something that I find intriguing. That that why has utopia been displaced as a genre? Uh, and and I'm still trying to figure it out. Especially because right now I decided that I'm that I, I have embarked on writing a utopian novel. Oh wow! Okay. Well, I mean, you know, I. I It's, it's, it's kind of a dare, uh, the, the, like doing it right, uh, for once. So I don't know how this will work out. Uh, but, but the, the, the problem is also the language. So that's an, another interesting thing about Star Trek. And, uh, we can get into that deeper is that you're using the language and the form of the present to tell about a society that has nothing to do with ours. So you're using, you know, like the, the, the three, Uh, you know, uh, the, the sort of like five or three part episode, uh, or the, the typical blockbuster movie where everything is sort of resolved at the end, uh, with catharsis. So you're using that form, which is the commercial form to tell about a society that has no care whatsoever about commerce in the way we understand it today. So you're using the forms of the present to tell of a society that is entirely different. This is very challenging. And um, precisely because it forces you to rely on the crutches of uh, the narrative art as it has been practiced in the context of a capitalist economy since, you know, and, and mass consumption since the 19th century. So you're, you're it's essentially Dickens. Um And we haven't moved from that type of storytelling, in a way, in popular entertainment. And it's interesting, I suppose, when you look at art within Star Trek, I mean, if you think of, you know, hollow novels or you, you, whenever we see kind of 
create creative works in a sense. They always seem a little bit naive somehow. There's something about the way that Star Trek presents them. You don't get uh, ever. I mean, I know the Doctor's Hollow novel was supposed to be this kind of incisive satire or whatever, but it feels quite ridiculous. It feels very sort of painted in primary colours. Um, and I suppose insofar as there is this kind of seesaw between optimism. Do you remember the publisher as well? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like- yeah. The whole business with the public. It, it, it all seems quite silly and quite kind of trivial. And maybe this is because people's livelihoods are not at stake, uh, because they don't need the money. And therefore the creation of art becomes, you know, even, even, I mean, we could get into a whole debate about how, you know, in the present day, uh, it, you know, the arts are so massively subsidized by people's own, you know, inherited wealth or, you, you know, other, other sources of income and so on. And the number of writers who make a, you know, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I do write books for money, but when I wrote a book about Star Trek, that certainly wasn't, it wasn't the dollar signs no. that were <laughs> the appeal no. there. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that is not why you do work it. That people do, even in this world, that is kind of not really recompensed at a. Exactly manageable or no, I mean, that's level. True. Do you know what I mean? There's the, these kind of dilemmas play into it. But I'm interested in Michael Shaban saying, uh, you know, that this idea doesn't work or that we're kind of not doing that. Because I wanted to ask you whether you think Picard, I mean, we've had all these prequels, obviously, and the prequels, I suppose, in, in your, with your argument that there's this kind of dividing point. And I love actually that in the book, you, you, point the kind of the moment that Star Trek splits, which had never really crossed my mind, is that dinner scene in Star Trek Four where they go out for Italian uh, and Kirk can't pick up the bill. <laughs> I don't have money, sorry. <laughs> exactly, a throwaway joke um, from Nicholas Meyer, who I'd say is on the, the, the least sort of utopian side yes. of Star Trek, if you know yes. what I mean, the most kind of cynical and gritty side of Star Trek, just throws this in as a throwaway joke. And somehow that becomes the starting point of this whole concept of a different reality you know? to be fair i think it was nimo you wrote that but like you know I, 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 who knows <laughs> yes <laughs> but i'm interested in picard obviously goes forward and picard slightly breaks the utopianism of certainly next generation and voyager in that it presents a very the federation seems like a bit of a a fallen utopia or at least a, a utopia that's showing some crack it's, it's not as the future is not as great as it was cracked up to be. And when it comes to money, again, we do get these interesting references to, you know, Rios saying he's being paid, that he's he's quite expensive. And you sort of start wondering, well, what's he being paid in? Is he being paid in crates of Chateau Picard? Because obviously, even in post-scarcity, those are scarce because there's a limited mm. number of them. Or is Picard literally paying him in some currency that we otherwise don't talk about or that we kind of pretend doesn't exist? Um it's kind of an interesting question. And I know in the book, you mentioned this idea that there's this line in Deep Space Nine, uh, where Jake says he's, he's been, um, he sold a story. And then he explains that's just a figure of speech. There's no money involved. Yes. <laughs> um, but can we really say that every reference to any kind of transaction in Star Trek is just a figure of speech or is there something? Obviously not. I mean, uh, you know. <laughs> okay. So I need to preface by, by saying that I didn't watch Picard at all because I have no interest. Um, that gives you a good excuse not to answer my question, whether it sort of breaks economics or not. But yeah. <laughs> I did follow the I did follow the debates because I, I you know from afar because I find it funny. But in a way, you know, I mean, again, conditions of productions. I mean, they, like I think they had a mandate to make Star Trek quote unquote relevant to the present, and. Um, yeah, so, you know, the sort of grim and dark side of things and, uh, 
it's it's another expression of uh, the the show at war with itself and at war with its tenets. Uh, and obviously, the people in charge right now of producing Star Trek have decided that they're going to go more in the direction of what they know how to do best, which is TV entertainment. I mean, you know, it, it's it's it, commercial considerations, and as but it's not just you know this sort of very basic commercial considerations like. It's it's more of an ideological decision on what matters to us as storytellers, uh, and what matters to them as storytellers is to talk about the present uh, and to make observations through drama about the world we live in. Uh, this is not what Star Trek: The Next Generation was interested in. Uh, mm. So so so. You know, and in order to sell their show and to to put it on the network platform or Netflix or whatnot, well, they make the decision to anchor their stories in the present uh, and to sort of put color over it and and you know masks and makeup and special effects. But in the end, these are stories about the present and about the motivations of people. The motivations of the characters are very much anchored in the way we uh, behave and therefore they're more quote unquote relatable. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a term of the trade as well here in Los Angeles that you have to make it relatable. Uh, what is the now of your show? Like I've heard that several times. I mean, it's, it's, you have to make it relatable on the assumption that this is why people will watch because they want to, um, be delivered edification about the way they live now. And it's interesting because in some ways the Picard of the neutral zone is not particularly relatable. I mean, Picard, no, exactly. Picard show, a lot of people had a problem with this, They that he was being chipped away at a bit. He does feel more like a recognisably contemporary person. He loses yes. his temper. He's kind of, you know, he's a bit grumpy. He's difficult. He's cantankerous. He's, But also there's this sort of, it, and again, we, it seems like we keep coming back to this, these questions of personality and temperament and kind of all these sorts of things, which is, I think is fascinating. But again, there's a link between, uh, economics and the personality because in the Picard show, a lot of it is about showing, and, and this very much ties into what you're saying about the moment of it being springing out at this particular moment. Picard kind of questioning his privilege. That's, that's one kind of reading of Picard is basically Picard was always very privileged and now he's kind of having to reckon with that. And a part of that is to do with his wealth, which is a weird thing to see in Star Trek, but you do get that in the Picard show with he's the guy with the big chateau and you have this character of Raffi, his former first officer, who's kind of drawing attention to that and saying, you know, yeah, you with your grand big old house and all your kind of oak furniture and all this stuff, you don't understand what life is like for the rest of us. And she, meanwhile, is living in this kind of sort of futuristic uh, caravan almost. And basically, I mean, it's, there obviously is, presumably there's some kind of universal basic income or there's some kind of, she's getting money to live she's she's subsisting fine but she's sort of basically saying yeah you've got everything you've got a life of luxury some of us have it tougher even within the federation which is quite a definitely i think 
more than anything else almost in that show is a departure from the economic reality of Star Trek up to that point. They've been trying to do that since, you know, Roddenberry decided that Star Trek was a utopia is the the writers and the producers sort of fighting against that precisely because it prevents them from telling stories that are relatable and that can be sold and that can be popular among today's public. It's the box. And I don't, it's nonsensical within the parameters set by Gene Roddenberry. It is not at all nonsensical uh, in the context of mass entertainment uh, and in the context of the trade of producing mass entertainment. It's not as philosophically um, arresting, I would say. Uh, and uh, in a way, it allows to tell a lot of stories to sort of like revert back to these sort of contemporary concerns about uh, the unequal distribution of wealth. I'm not, I'm not sure what is learned or what is, uh, at least to me, I'm not sure what is, um, what's provoking my, my thoughts and my imagination in a show that just describes the world as it is. Um, mm -hmm. This, I mean, there, there's a lot of that. And it's, you know, it's popular and it certainly helps sell the show. And, but it, it's not, um, it's not necessarily as provocative and as evocative as, uh, something that tries to paint society in a completely different light. So there's that. And that, and I think also at the end, there, there, There is underneath all this. There is a, a there is an. It's a it's it's a political decision. It's it's a it's a political and and this is a political struggle within the community of people who produce Star Trek and write Star Trek. And I know some of them, um, and I've had discussions with them. And um, you know, I I stay away from this world because. It's it's not my world, and I don't find it particularly interesting. Uh, but there is this real split uh, between the people who want to push more in the utopian direction to make a point about the present that way, and between the people who you know who are not in control and who want to be gritty and who say. Uh, oh, but, you know, of course, socialism, as depicted in Star Trek, cannot work. Of course not. Um, and mm -hmm. and that's the real privilege here, by the way. Um, that's the real privilege. That's Chabon's privilege. Uh, of course, socialism cannot work. And, you know, probably because capitalism seems to work very well for him. So that's his privilege. <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. Well, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think there's also beyond the question of kind of um, it, it, there being almost ulterior motives for these decisions in terms of, okay, whether it's, you know, we want to get drama out of this situation, we want to reflect the present day, or we think it will sell better. There's also, though, a kind of philosophical difference, I think, between different people. And some people, you know, someone like Gene Roddenberry, despite, as I say, being a bit of a uh, sneaky capitalist at times, obviously really bought into this idealism. Someone like Nicholas Meyer, much more cynical, much more kind of um, has a more cynical view of human nature, I would say. And interestingly, th this 
whole question of whether changing the economic conditions of society automatically changes the kind of people you get goes all the way back to Marx. Um, you know, Marx believed that if you change, if you know, if you get rid of capitalism, people will become kind of better, kinder, gentler people. Others thought that was nonsense. I mean, um, Bakunin argued that Marx was deluded, basically, to think that, and that that would all. And, and this, I suppose, is what we've seen with you know communism in the twentieth century that. You know, just because there's a, uh, you know, a kind of broadly Marxist, uh, system going on in some ways, you doesn't remove, it doesn't necessarily mean everyone becomes nice and decent and like they are in Star Trek. And, <laughs> you know, this is I, the problem. But like communism as, you know, it happened in the 20th century. Okay. Let, let me backtrack. You have to believe that there is such a thing as human nature. That's an, that's actually a philosophical position. And I, and I, and also an ideological one. Uh, I don't believe that philosophy is separate from, uh, the conditions in which it is produced. Uh, so if you say that there is such a thing as human nature, which personally I don't subscribe and I don't see any empirical evidence for it. Um, if you say that there's such a thing as an eternal human nature, you know, humans are, are, um, are naturally inclined to give in to the worst angels in their nature. Uh, humans are fallen. Uh, there, there's something uh, deeply religious about that belief and is informed by a long tradition, you know, that goes back all the way to the original sin. Um, and that somehow there are things that are inscribed in human nature that are hardwired Um inclinations, you know, uh, evil, these sort of things. Uh, a side note to that is you do have people who fantasize about um, evolutionary psychology. You try to find evidence for a genetic basis for this. Uh, this is also religion. So either you believe in that and that is your stance, and that is the way you look at humanity, or you don't. People who practice their trade writing drama uh, or melodrama have obviously an unexamined uh, um, propensity to believe in that, uh, because this is the these are the ideas that provide for your material comfort and that give you a job so you are over determined to believe in that if you uh write melodrama for a living well i don't so uh i don't believe in that and i don't have to believe in that and i don't have to convince myself in my everyday life and in my everyday practice and in my writing that this is how humanity is and that there is a human nature so that's one thing. Now, f as for the evidence for, you know, whether uh, material conditions uh, improve outcomes and uh, improve behaviors, we have 300 years of capitalism to tell us that, in fact, material improvements in standards of living make society more peaceful. Not always and, you know, not necessarily in the way that everybody would want, precisely because wealth is not well distributed. But 
we know that there is such a thing as what um, people in the 18th century called du commerce. Uh, so soft commerce, uh, sweet commerce. The notion that um, the increase in material wealth throughout society makes people less inclined to go to war because they are more attached to the trifles and the luxuries of everyday life. Um, so that's very much 18th century. So that's a proof right there, you know, like that's, that's empirical proof right there that actual improvements in material standards of living improve life and therefore improve social life and behaviors and, and make people less inclined to, um, fight amongst each other or to be quote unquote assholes. <laughs> um, there is like the, the ethics of life in society is determined by the distribution of wealth and by the standards of living that we make for ourselves. Um, most crimes in today's society are the result of financial hardship and poverty. They're not the, 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 the proportion of people who, uh, you know, kill, you know, the, there are very few serial killers. And this is a disease, you know, like the sociopathy is a, is a disease. It, it's a mental disease. It's not a product of, it, it's a special thing. But most crimes in society are, are today in our world are crimes of, you know, uh, motivated by, by, by inequality and by, um, financial hardship. We also know that, uh, Financial insecurity and poverty uh, has terrible impact on mental health and on child development and on uh, stress and on your ability to um, make decisions uh, uh, for your own welfare. So... In a way, the, the, I think the, the empirical data and the experience of the past 200, 300 years tell us that, yes, when material conditions improve, people change. So how can you at the same time maintain the fiction of a human nature in the face of your own improving material conditions? And that's, by the way, that is, entertainment is here to maintain these fictions. And, and people, um, draw, you know, increased material benefits from maintaining these fictions, but it's still a fiction and it's still philosophically, um, contradictory, but not only contradictory, it's stupid. Honestly, there is no such thing as human nature. There I said it. Uh, people, <laughs> no, but like, this is something I actually experienced myself in my life. Um, I spent some time on the kibbutz. I've experienced what's, Everyday socialism is, it's wonderful. People don't care about what people outside care about. Uh, they care about other things and they gossip a lot and they argue a lot about very arcane things. But a kibbutz, I mean, you know, and a kibbutz is profoundly imperfect because it's also an artifact of 
uh, Zionist imperialism. So this is what it is. And I'm Israeli, by the way. So, you know, I can say that. Um, but a kibbutz is the closest you get to socialism or was the closest you could get to socialism in this world uh, and to Star Trek in this world, uh, not, you know, the Soviet Union. So the, I, I knew it's possible and I knew it exists. You know, when people ask me, oh, but do you think it's possible? I say, of course it's possible. It happened already uh, locally and not globally, but it, it does exist. It happens. Um, it's, it's just not something that, um, jibes well with the narratives we tell about ourselves, especially about human nature and about the possibility of improvements in human nature. And this is not the narratives that, um, you know, move product, uh, for the spectacle and for entertainment. It's, and it's not entertaining. It's not exciting. Life in the kibbutz is not exciting. It's very nice, but it's not exciting. And it's temporary, I guess, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the other thing is there's an element of being drawn back into the kind of, uh, the, the, the world with all its problems and all its issues and all its temptations and, you know, all of that. I mean, I suppose in Star Trek, at least they're kind of, uh, well, they haven't completely removed that because obviously you could go and set up on. But you notice also like on Deep Space Nine, you notice on Deep Space Nine, on Deep Space Nine, as you notice, you know, like they all have, uh, all the, the Federation officers can go play at Quarks. And, and, and money to them is almost like a, like, it's like a game, right? Like it doesn't, it's fun. It doesn't yeah. have the same attraction, uh, because it's not, it's not laden with all the, the, the obligations to make money for yourself that are attached to our, you know, existing world today. So to them, it's, it's like they're like children playing. Um, and, and, you know, and gambling is, is fun because it's not just a disease. Um, so this is, this is, they do engage in that. I think, I think, and you have to give credit to Star Trek, at least, you know, the next generation and Deep Space Nine for that. They really made an, an honest effort to actually portray people the way Kibbutz Nikim that I knew, uh, behaved like. Uh, and, but I understand also that this is not very exciting to most people and it's not very relatable. And, um, in the end, you know, if you, it's, it also makes sense in the, in the way entertainment and the production of entertainment functions, it also makes sense that you have to give in to the sort of, uh, you know, you have to make sausage. The entertainment is sausage. You have to, you have to keep on making it. It has to come out all the time and be consistent. It's, 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 um, it's an industry like any other. Uh, so these things are very rare and, uh, they don't last just like, you know, maybe the kibbutz. Well, the other thing about Star Trek is that obviously, I mean, on one level, you might say Star Trek is very relentlessly focused on the question of what does it mean to be human? What kind of, what is human nature? What are, what are the parameters of humanity? But at the same time, it not only it presents this kind of future version of humanity, but it also repeatedly gives us these moments where it's hinting that there's kind of something yet to come. There's more change. The idea of what humanity is can change. It has changed already to some extent. 
but you know we got at the end of the motion picture the human adventure is just beginning we get at the end of next generation q saying you know this is the journey that awaits you you've got this kind of next step to take so star trek seems to keep presenting this idea that you know human beings can evolve so they've already evolved i mean picard talks about it you know as you say in the neutral zone it's our infancy uh in first contact it's we have an evolved sensibility it's this idea that we've evolved and we've kind of grown up and we've kind of improved and yet there's more to be done although of course first contact has it both ways because it also you know he gives that beautiful speech but then the film undercuts it by showing that actually you know even picard the most evolved the most perfect the most kind of like you say most vulcan character if you find the thing that is really going to needle him, he'll crack and he will become, you know, as we see in Deep Space Nine, has this kind of idea, well, if humans are, if their creature comforts are taken away, if their perfect society is kind of chipped away at, actually that human nature reasserts itself. And I suppose that's what you see in First Contact, whether you agree with it, you you know, philosophically or not, that's kind of what the story is doing, is sort of saying even this perfected human is ultimately human and and with again that kind of inflection that weirdly for star trek which sort of is very humanistic and celebrates the idea of being human most of the time the idea of human nature has a kind of negative it's contradictory uh, right kernel to it, it it's contradictory yeah. and also it's it i i think the the contradiction is embodied in in data because in a way data is the most human of all the characters because he wants to become human uh the 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 humans that are already humans they're sort of like way past that um the 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 interesting part is the emotions and the the status of emotions in all this um the vulcans who are the sort of aspirational endpoint of all this have no emotions and are struggling with the fact that they have no emotions data who's on the other side of the road, you know, like on his path towards becoming human, doesn't have emotions. And the humans you see usually, they have emotions, but only really their emotions surface as negative impulses in the most dire of circumstances. And which is strange because, okay, we've just had like 3 billion people cooped up at home because of a pandemic. And I think it went pretty well. Right. So what kind of uh, conception of humanity is that where the sort of the return of the repressed uh, comes out if, you know, you end up with less money or or, less food on the table or less comfort or less money or whatever? What we've seen today, you know, in the past two months is actually that people will willingly shelter themselves at home in order to protect everybody else. As long as I say, as they feel that everyone else is doing the same thing, it's like some weird kind of prisoner's <laughs> dilemma or something. It's isn't collective it? action. As long as we're all in it together, as long as we believe that everyone is doing it, then we'll do it. And yet, seemingly, the crack comes when, you know, if suddenly we don't believe in that anymore, then people start um, behaving ir- kind of irrationally, selfishly, insofar as their, their selfishness is actually going to shoot them in the foot in the long run as well as everyone else but you know it's that kind of almost bloody minded uh attitude i think that that 
you know maybe is coming out i mean we'll we'll see we'll, we'll see how it goes but you're right absolutely i mean i don't know about in the states but certainly in the uk people on the whole have been here too i mean i found it almost surreal how willing people have been to go along with quite mad you know this whole idea of like keep two meters away from everyone yeah you know everyone started doing it the next day if you had to go out to the shops or something people follow these rules and every so often you kind of have this moment where you kind of think this is this is bizarre no one could have predicted we'd be doing these kind of weird things you know it's, it, there's something almost surreal about it this kind of instruction to like keep this imaginary distance between people uh, and yet everyone up until the last few days in my experience seemed quite willing to um go along with that and it's it's because they believed in it you know they believed in the reason there 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 are very little drama when things go right uh <laughs> yeah and, right. and but like but you got more interesting recently that's true cool. but you see what i'm saying like the 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 anthropological like what i'm aiming at with this is the anthropological premises on which a lot of this entertainment is based are false demonstrably false It's not uh, it's not self-evident that people will become, you know, animals the moment you take away their creature's comforts. It's not. In fact, most of the time, it's also known that in, you know, major uh, disasters and even during wars, people tend to cooperate much more. Why? Because actually, and this is something I learned, you know, in my in my time around the kibbutz is that actually cooperation, um, the marshalling of resor- of limited resources is much more efficient with cooperation than with the sort of uh, individualistic, I get mine type of behavior. Uh, everybody benefits. So there, there's a rational, you know, economic way to couch it as well, that actually the greater benefit, the, the cooperation usually um benefits more than individualism. So there's that one thing. But there's also the fact that the entire history of humanity, if you look back at it, is is to develop ever more complex ways to cooperate and to coordinate. Uh, so so if there's anything like human nature in history that is sort of unfolding throughout human throughout history you know in sort of a Hegelian way um it's increased complexity in the institutions and in the instrumentalities that allow us to cooperate and coordinate the market being just one instance of it the market is ex- precisely an example of spontaneous coordination through instrumentalities um So I, again, you know, like the sort of the return of the repressed and, and the, the, the beast that lurks within every one of us, I think is, is something that we should sort of let go of and we would benefit from letting go of it, uh, because we would learn more about ourselves than retailing the same sort of hero's journey and adversity and, protagonist antagonist thing all over all the time um i mean we do that for commercial reasons but the evidence and the real world and our real world our experience in the real world tells us the contrary and the opposite so how do we deal with that in a way that enlightens and and livens and delights people that's you know another matter star trek actually Next generation in particular, and some Deep Space Nine as well. Like they actually managed to do that, to to entertain and to delight, while at the same time um, 
not relying on the usual uh, tired anthropological assumptions about humanity that you show in every other piece of entertainment. Um, so that's that's unique. It's over. And that's one of the reasons we love Star Trek, uh, aside from anything else, is it is different from it's weird. You know, 99.9% it, of science It makes no sense. It's very dystopian and very cynical uh, and, and so on. It's interesting you talk about this human quality of cooperation, because I think you do see that in Enterprise. I mean, I think you see that throughout Star Trek. The humans are willing to kind of, uh, you, you know, extend an olive branch to kind of try to understand each other. An episode like Darmok, for example, you know, quintessential next-gen episode, all about kind of cooperating and working together and understanding each other but in enterprise you get this sense you know talking about this idea of what is human nature that the founding of the federation you've got all these other species who actually are more advanced uh you know technologically than the humans the humans seem like they're the last to the table but the one quality the humans seem to have that no one else has is the ability to get everyone to talk together they're the kind of diplomats they're the ones who are able to kind of uh, they're the glue that holds the Federation together. Um, rather than being, you know, other than that in Star Trek, I think you always see the humans sort of at the top of the Federation. You get the sense they're the most important ones somehow. And there are a handful of Vulcans and, you know, maybe you see an Andorian if the budget can stretch to it and so on. Um, but in Enterprise, it's very much this idea that the humans are the ones who are the best able to kind of get past their petty differences, to kind of get past bigotry, to kind of um, work together with with the alien. And that, I think, is quite interesting. But I suppose one of the things that Enterprise doesn't do is, you know, in, in having that prequel series, there was an opportunity to kind of show how did we get you know, as they say, for getting from here to there or getting from there to here, you know, how do we get from our society, which seems very kind of troubled and problematic? I mean, look at, you know, as we're recording in America, uh, you know, riots going on over this awful killing of this black guy by a policeman, you know, these kind of terrible moments that seem to show real fractures in in human societies. How do we get to that kind of perfected or at least much more perfect uh, future society? And in a way, Enterprise sort of this seems to have, it's already happened yeah. by that point. Exactly. It's kind of, Star Trek's always, it, it doesn't really want to show what is the process? You know, how do you get from our broken society or our broken world now to that kind of future? And maybe that is, again, about this slight anxiety about you know, in the 60s, Roddenberry was saying, we don't want to say who who's going to win this Cold War. We don't want to say which economic system is going to come out on top. Star Trek slightly avoids answering that question in terms of the kind of history of it. It sort of avoids explaining, well, where did money go? What happened to it? You, you know, I think it's Tom Paris in Star Trek Voyager who says the Vulcan came and uh, money went the way of the dodo and the new world economics started and, and that's the Vulcan scheme. And everyone lived happily ever after sort of thing. Right. And, but, but like, like, yeah. but, because the problem, the problem is society usually changes through war and revolution. And that's a downer. Um, and, um, you know, there is this sense amongst some people and it's a question I get a lot, you know, talking about the book is like, so how do you think we get there? Um, the, the bad news is I don't think, you know, technology in and of itself changes society. It's society that changes, you know, it's a feedback loop. It's not because we're going to invent this, um, uh, magical device that magically things are going to get better. Uh, or that uh, people are going to change, uh, they're going to react to it. But I mean, a, a good example of that is 
the the invention of the the invention of the steam engine. So there is this mathematician in Alexandria in the first century AD who invented the steam engine. Well, the steam engine at the time had no purpose because there was slavery. So technology in and of itself uh, um, is not enough to change society. Uh, it may contribute to it, but it's not enough. So it's not technological. I don't believe at least that uh, technological progress per se will make things, you know, like Star Trek. It's not because we will invent the replicator that things will magically change or there will be disruptions, but it's not of that kind. So, and there's no actual, you know, it's, it's, it's a typical thing also. It's a trope even of, uh, utopian, uh, literature that there is usually utopia, like originally, you know, it's this island in the middle of the ocean. So there, there's a, the passage itself the, the the journey the pilgrimage from one from our world to utopia is not you know is is glossed over uh precisely because in fact not only do do we not know uh we cannot really tell the future um we do not understand how historical change happens we we have lots of examples, but we don't understand. There there are no real laws. Uh, very little things, very things that start very small can have tremendous impacts. Um, I always cite, you know, um, Becquerel who who forgot about plates, photographic plates in his drawers, and you know, one night in eighteen ninety six. And three days later, you know, basically discovered radioactivity. And 50 years later, you have the atomic bomb. Um, so the, the, the divergence and the chaotic nature of little things and little discoveries, um, and, and things that look pedestrian today and can become enormous 50 years later, we don't know. Uh, so there is no, uh, there is no, there is no way to, there, there is no handbook on how to get there. Um, there is no, the only handbook in a way on how to get there is to its imagination. So I would say and it's trying to imagine a future that is better or that is more, you know, uh, conducive to human flourishment, uh, to, to humans flourishing. Um, and that's maybe the guide for the present, but. Do are we going? First of all, you know, we're, there there are no aliens. We're all alone. Uh, we're never going to travel at the speed of light. We're barely ever going to, you know, have like a little outpost on Mars. You know, this is so. So none of that science fiction thing uh, should be taken literally. Uh, uh, it's it's just not. It, it's nonsense. It's it's um, it's entertainment. Uh, science fiction in that, you know, sort of like, let's go to space and space aliens and all that. This is all, it's, it's entertainment. It probably, there's an element of modern religion to it as well. Um, because science uh, has become the central belief in our world. The fact that, you know, science talks about the natural world is independent from the fact that people treat it as religion. Um, uh, so there's no, there's no, you see what I'm saying? Like none of the things that are described as they are described for entertainment purpose on Star Trek, none of this will come to pass. 
Um, it's it's not the replicator and all that. Like none of this. No, 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 no. This this is all. It's a thought experiment. Uh, so so you have to take. You you have to personally. I try to um, uh, to uncover the philosophical principles underneath the stories because these are the only guides and uh, these are the only guides to the future. And the philosophical principles are, you know, perpetual peace, um, cosmopolitan government. So, you know, it's, there's a Kantian aspect to that and cooperation as the basis of human society and behaviors. Um, and, and socialism, all that, you know, um, these are arrangements that come and go and their words and, um, and the, the arrangements around private property or not private property, all that stuff. You know, th- this is, this is flotsam and jetsam of history. It's, it's, these are, these are, you know, the market, all that. Is capitalism going to survive? Okay, this, these are questions I've had while talking about the book, but th- these are, you know, Capitalism is 300 years old, uh, 400 years old. It, like, it, it will pass like everything else. Uh, so, so you have to take the longer view on this and, and the, the, uh, the, the philosophical journey and the philosophical uh, invention uh, are, to me, at least seem to me more important than, you know, like whether the gizmos are going to do this or that or whether, you know, I will own a, my Chateau Picard or not. Um, of course you won't or you will, and it's not that relevant. And so, so, you know, again, they, this, this is why I can't, you know, predicting the future is hard. I mean, no, it's, it's, uh, Niels Bohr, the, the atomic scientist, uh, nuclear scientist who once said predictions are hard, especially about the future. Um, I, I, you know, the future is what we make of it. And so what we, we produce the future by our, by, by our present practice. And, uh, we'd better inform our practice, uh, with the philosophy, uh, and the, the, uh, ideas that can, you know, uh, help us birth a better future. And yet to, to some extent, you know, Star Trek has proved that it is possible to imagine a future and bring it into being in small ways, in kind of in, in ways to do with our daily lives. I mean, look at your mobile phone. It's basically a communicator. There are kind of things that start your iPad is basically a pad. In terms of technology, at least Star Trek has managed to kind of inspire these things. Maybe it can in terms of social change as well. I mean, when you're thinking about this idea of projecting into the future, yes, of course, we can't really know what the future is going to be. But if we, if you're writing science fiction, you kind of have to imagine something that the future is going to be. And actually, if you go back to, I mean, I don't know whether one of my questions was going to be, you know, is, is Treconomics Marxist or is it something else? But at least if you go back and look at kind of Marx, again, there's this idea of, he's not just saying this is how things are and this is how they should be. He's positing an entire kind of, um, uh, future history that's going to happen in order to get to, do you know what I mean? It's this idea yeah. of this kind of, there's a direction, there's a flow to history. There's, there's, and, and we're in the middle of it. We're not at the end of it. We're, there's kind of something ahead of us and we can kind of imagine how it's going to play out. Now he may have got it completely wrong in various ways and Star Trek may have got it completely wrong in various ways, but I'm kind of interested with Trekonomics. 
compared to say the science of star trek that this is you know all these other kind of things which say a warp drive is never going to happen the transport is never going to happen all these things are never going to happen actually one of the things i loved about your book is it feels quite optimistic it feels like it's sort of saying well you know maybe this could happen this is not beyond the realm of possibility um this kind of system makes more sense than it seems that it might you know it actually it might work but i do not recall um being that sanguine about warp drives and you know aliens and people in no, space. No, exactly. All of that stuff less less probable, sadly, for those of us who would <laughs> love to meet them and to go there. And, and they don't so exist. But actually, they don't the exist. kind of social change might be possible, and that is you know tantalizing in a way. I want to stress that they don't exist, and you know why? Because a lot of the science of uh, planetary you know planetary science involved in seeking for alien life was invented before we discovered before we even reckoned and discovered plate tectonics plate tectonics became normal science in the 1980s what plate tectonics tells you is that the way life has sprung on earth is heavily dependent on having an active lid uh, recycling of the earth's crust and that it's actually a very limited case in um and that it takes a lot of time and so um in a way the development of life in the universe there might be a lot of life intelligence as we have developed it hard to say and probably not concurrently that's the other thing so again you know th these are speculations that come out of a moment in history you know the post-war the atomic age a lot of the people who designed the bomb became involved in seeking aliens, interestingly enough. It's called the Fermi Paradox for a reason. So science fiction as popular entertainment latched onto that and produced a lot of that and, 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 and maintained this sort of sense of Whiggish history. That's, that's, you know, that progress is never ending and that we are progressing, you know, ad astra. Uh, that, that's Whiggish history. That's the sort of idea that, uh, you know, and, and, in, in the British, uh, or in the Anglosphere, you people call it, uh, Whiggish history, but we in France, we, we have, uh, our own Condorcet who wrote something to that effect. But the, there's, there's this idea that progress is constant. Um, it's kind of naive. It is naive. And we, and especially because we tend to equate progress with uh, the inventions of machines and the refinement in machines. But uh, that's difficult to call. I mean, this is not progress per se, the refinement of machines to be ever more efficient and to be ever more um, uh, optimized. Uh, this is not progress. This is something else, but it's, it's not progress, uh, as understood as a social process. So there's that. The other part that I find very interesting is that economics itself is a lot of it is science fiction because, and resembles science fiction because what, what is involved in economics is drawing models to extrapolate, uh, future outcomes and science fiction as it was formalized, you know, in the late 19th century, uh, relies on the same mental exercise of extrapolation of present understanding of the world as it is. 
so economics is, you know, economics and science fiction are, are very tied together historically, but also in, in their own operations. Uh, science fiction usually, you know, uses literary devices. Economics, they use math. Uh, but fundamentally, it's an activity that is not um, fundamentally different, I think. So, and it's a trope or, or it's an interesting product of the liberal democratic world. Like the, the freedom and ability to imagine the future is something that happens in a world where, uh, the future is possible. So, so that discursive space is opened by democracy or by modern form of, you know, democracy and free speech. Uh, it's it's not something there's there's no science fiction under monarchy or very little uh because it the the future is in fact envisioned as static because uh the monarch is the monarch by divine right and divine right is forever uh because the divinity is forever uh, democracy creates, like modern democracy creates another space to imagine the future. So the operation by which we actually imagine the future is also something that is historically determined. Uh, and that is, um, uh, that, that latches onto the behaviors that are structured by our current political and economic arrangement. So. There's that too, you know, like, I don't know, you know, that, that's, that's one of the questions I had when I was writing the book is like, do the people in Star Trek actually uh, write science fiction? Well, in Picard, uh, you won't know this if you haven't seen it, but there's a throwaway joke where um, one of the other characters is reading, I think a, an Asimov book and, and Picard sees it and says, Oh, I never had any time for science fiction. <laughs> so and, and you can kind of understand it. Cause you think if you lived in Star Trek, why would you bother reading science fiction? It would seem uh, Quaint. it would seem peculiar in a sense that like it's, it's right there. Um, I like this idea that economics is basically science fiction, though. It makes me feel a bit less, uh, terrified by the idea of economics and, and this kind of world that these geniuses seem to understand somehow that the rest of us just, you know, are kind of baffled by. Uh, the idea that there's an element of kind of, um, imagination in play as much as kind of crunching these incredibly complex numbers makes it, um, that, that, that kind of makes a lot of sense to me in some ways. It sounds like what you're saying, though, in terms of our own kind of world and in terms of what we might do to try and make our world more like Star Trek. I mean, if the warp drive's not there, if the aliens are not going to be there, we're not going to find Star Trek out in the universe. The only place we might find Star Trek is here on Earth. So presumably, you know, if there is a possibility of a Trekonomic system, it's going to be here on earth that we kind of have to make it we are the journey is within the the, the journey is within ourselves and within our society uh, and on earth i mean we are of earth and earth is us uh living outside of earth is just not a practical or economical thing which runs so counter to star trek where you know Earth is, I mean, Star Trek frequently doesn't go to Earth. Even in that original series Bible, they say basically, we're never going to go to Earth. We won't, we won't go to Earth. But because they're doing Gulliver's travel. But yeah, exactly. But in later shows, they would go to Earth. But in something like Family, 
you know, Picard goes back to the chateau, but Picard just wants to escape from the chateau. I mean, he doesn't in that episode because he's in turmoil and so on. But ultimately, you know, the young Picard and even the old Picard in the Picard series now, he's back on the chateau looking up at the stars thinking, you know, I want to be back there. The yearning for exploration. Yeah, but that's it's a trope. I mean, it's the yearning for exploration uh, as if, you know, most people on Earth today are incredibly sedentary. They, they, you probably in your daily life, as in mine, you know, we barely go further than five, mi- five miles out. Uh, and it's not because we have these incredible means of communication. It's just that, in fact, we are um, social animals. We like our the society of the people close to us. And this is how we... Um, this is how we enjoy our lives. Uh, and exploration uh, is, it's the sociopath. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's true. It's the sociopath or the sort of like the adventurers. It's true. But then Star Trek gets around that by, certainly from next gen on, having a family, you know, having yes. families on board, having, yes. even if it's not families on board, something like Voyager, that crew yes. is a family. It's a pleasure itself. cruise. You know, it's a society, exactly, by turning the ship itself into the into the kind of, like you say, utopia, an island. The ship is an island in a sense, yeah. and it is almost a perfect society in its own right. And that's why we don't need to go back to Earth very often. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the, 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 one of the things I'm trying to do right now is is essentially, I mean, I don't like to couch it in this way, but like, okay, what would Star Trek look like without the starships and without uh, without space, without the aliens, without the starships? Um, they, there's been, uh, um, you know, it's it's one of the things they've never done with the show is to actually like get rid of all the starships and the 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 space opera and the pew pew and all that and just like show people living on earth um and and of course you know now the parameters have changed so if they were to do it they'd, they'd probably show us riots and stuff uh because you know the, the we're going to talk about the now but the, the they never did that fully. I, I, you remember in Deep Space Nine in the Maquis, uh, episodes uh, where you see Maquis people, you know, on their planet that has been reclaimed by the Cardassians. They seem to live this sort of Jeffersonian, uh, idol, uh, before the Cardassians, at least, you know, where re- you work the land, you build a nice village, um, you have this executive committee where people discuss the allocation or this or that. Uh, you have schools, you have children running around. Um, it seems somewhat rustic, but the rustic nature of it is belied by the fact that it's backed by incredible technology. It's the sort of frontier model as well, isn't it? It's kind of going back to Star Trek as wagon train and the kind of space as the final frontier, I suppose. It's the little know, house on the prairie. Settlements. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 you know, <laughs> but, but like there's the sense, you know, I, um, me, I, I read it as some more, much more as kibbutz in a way, but the kibbutz itself originally was about a sort of anthropological project to, to make urban, uh, smart asses work the land, you know, and pick avocados <laughs> yeah. and all that. Um, and that's why, you know, when, when Jean-Paul Sartre 
visited the kibbutz in the 50s and he wrote a book about it and he's like oh yeah so i see these guys you know like picking avocados during the day and then at night they're playing cello and they have this orchestra and they're like excellent but yeah of course because you know they were all educated in germany uh and they were all bourgeois uh so but like there's this sense that this is what um they were looking at in, in the Maquis and in general, you know, when you see slivers of everyday life in the Federation, it's either, you know, the sort of idol of uh, Jeffersonian self-reliance in the countryside with technology, or it's like the crazy scientist in his garage doing his thing and inventing crazy things. So it's the doctor, you know, um, and, and it seems that the, the, the pursuit of private, um, the, the private pursuits, sorry, private pursuits, whether they be, um, of a material nature, growing food or inventions is something that is taking place all the time in the Federation, uh, precisely because people don't have to work, uh, and don't have to spend most of their time working. So they're actually working to provide for a living. So they actually spend a lot of their time working for themselves and working on themselves, on themselves. Uh, and so the journey and the pilgrimage, life is a pilgrimage and it's good works and it's a journey of self-discovery and self-invention through, uh, through the labor of love to, through labors of love. Um, so that's, that's kind of like how it looks as a sort of a philosophical, like it's, it's, that's how life, everyday life looks in the federation as it is depicted and maybe who knows maybe some of us in the the current predicament i mean i don't know about you i've got a four-year-old so I'm, I'm struggling to you know manage work and and childcare and all these sort of things but some people i gather in this current moment where they're not able to do their work are you know making the most of it learning a new language you, you know taking up yeah. gardening whatever it is and the, uh, are getting a sort of taste of that with you know it must be said here in the uk uh, you know, the government providing basically a form of income. I mean, I get a kind of a percentage of what my income would have been, you know, not a hundred percent, but a, a decent amount given that there are no restaurants, there are no pubs, there are no cinemas, you know, there's nowhere to spend your money basically other than on, you know, rent or the mortgage or whatever it is and food. Um, and, you know, for some people, they are being given a glimpse of that kind of situation in a sense where the government is giving them money. They're not really necessarily able to do wage work uh you, you know as i say many people have, have very different problems and it's 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 worked out very unequally but for some people at least the lockdown experience has been this kind of strange uh ledger situation of um you know having that kind of time almost like a kind of midlife retirement uh experience somehow so you know you, you know the funny part my kid so he's 12 so he's in sixth grade and so they, they're doing instruction through Zoom. And he discovered that, in fact, the the actual time of, of instruction for a day is less than an hour. <laughs> right. And I was yeah. like, oh, because, you know, because that you learn other things in school it's, and it's spread over time. Um, and but it seems that he, he figured out that actually school exists so that the kids will be off of their parents' hands so that parents can go to work. Um, it's. But the amount of instruction in itself is not, you know, is nothing uh, very taxing. And I'm sure, you know, this is an experience that a lot of people have had with their own work, especially if it's, you know, office work or uh, uh, 
the kind of managerial work that where you have to be where usually you're there and you sit there and you go to a meeting and you go to a meeting for this and meeting for that. But the amount of actual work that you produce probably takes, you know, half an hour a day. Um, and so, so, and then, and then of course you have to face the metaphysical problems that go with, okay, so now what do I do? What do I do? And, um, so, so we've had the situation where, you know, I'm not saying three billion people, but, but among the privileged ones have had to, uh, have had time to, to consider, uh, the meaning of life. And am I ready to die now? Because, you know, it's, it's a deadly disease. So it's like, am I ready to die now? Uh, have I done well with myself in my life and by, if I, I done well by others? Um, it's not quite utopia. Uh, but the presence of death and the forced inactivity and, and the, 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 it's taxing, but it's also, I think some people may have gotten a lot out of this. And maybe, um, when this is over, uh, we'll start on a new foot, you know? Um, I, I don't know. You know, this is one of these things that, uh, one of these events, you know, that are in nature chaotic and that was not predicted at all. And if somebody had written, you know, a science fiction book depicting this, nobody would be, people would have been like, yeah, sure, whatever. So this is, we live in, in a, in a moment where reality exceeds fiction, uh, vastly. And I find this very interesting. And in a way, you know, when, when, when we try to reflect on is Treconomics possible? Is Star Trek possible? Um, when you see, you know, the past three months, I think anything is possible precisely because reality and, and life in society will always exceed our abilities to imagine, uh, what can happen. And, and, and so in fact, one of the ways to deal with this, to, to, to deal with the unthinkable is to um, try to be, uh, to have a, a philosophical humility about it. Like, I don't know much. Um, what I think I know may, may be wrong and I need to listen to others and perhaps with some cooperation and listening, we may be able to navigate this. You know, uh, that, that's, that's what I draw from that. Um, and it seems to me that maybe, you know, um, Star Trek to some extent and in some episodes and in some moments, uh, has that sort of stance. Uh, you know, we don't know much. Let's listen. We'll see what we can do. Uh, is, um, that's you know that that's in the end that's that's what I really appreciate in the show, um, at least in its earlier um, instantiations. But we don't know, and I don't know, and I don't know, and and um, I don't know what's going to happen to us, and nobody knows. In fact.
Well, Manu, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, talking about Trekonomics and much beyond. Uh, if our listeners want to get hold of you on social media to bend your ear about their own economic theories, what's the best way of them doing that? And also just give our listeners a reminder about the book and how they can get hold of it. Uh, so so I, I, I lurk on Twitter too much uh, while I'm procrastinating while writing. So I'm at Trekonomics. And the book can be uh, procured at various uh, outlets online. Uh, I don't think anybody will buy physical books right now, or maybe they will. Um, There's also an excellent uh, audio book, because I, I, lis- I listened to your book originally a few years ago when it first came out. Oliver is wonderful. He's, he's such a wonderful reader. Yes, he, he turned it into something really funny. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I would, I would, so it's available through Audible exclusively. Um, and yes, so, you know, the book is called Treconomics, The Economics of Star Trek. Um, I love to talk about it because now it seems so far away, you know. Um, it was written in different circumstances. There's also, that's why some of it is optimistic. But in fact, I don't know and nobody knows. Um, yes. So, and hopefully the, the novel I'm writing will be finished by the end of the lockdown. Uh, you know, in six months or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, it won't, it won't be over in there six you go. months. You're, you're making the most of enforced, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, you know, you know, I mean, I've been taking meetings with various producers and all that. I have to say, like Hollywood keeps on going, man. Um, uh, they can't shoot anything. <laughs> so they're preparing, but they you can know. have lots of uh, discussions, lots of Zoom meetings. Yes. It's exhausting. So that's, that's, that's how it is. And, uh, yes, Traconomics is available. I love to argue on Twitter. So, um, and that's it. And then, you know, more stuff is coming. And you, you also have your Traconomics trackbot, which even anyone who hasn't encountered you on Twitter, <laughs> if they're interested in Star yes. Trek has probably encountered the Traconomics trackbot, which goes around re- retweeting Star Trek content, basically. A random content, yeah, automatically. So sometimes <laughs> some of it's it bad. quite unsuitable. I've noticed. <laughs> I mean, some yes. of it quite, well, I mean, quite surprising. Some, some people try to <laughs> some some try to game it, you yeah. know, by inserting a hashtag in a porn <laughs> shoot or something. Yeah, but I, these I delete right. every once in a yeah, while. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. yes. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and I would hardly recommend Trekonomics to anyone interested in Star Trek, because I think it's a fascinating uh, look at, you know, how that world might actually kind of hold together. Thank you, Duncan, and be safe, and everybody be safe. Well, it's been fun talking Trekonomics with Manu Sardia, but that's not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.fm. Literary Treks. Not wanting to be spoiled about this book, I would suggest then not listening now, read the book, and then come back later. And then you can enjoy the whole freaking feature of this glorious analysis that we're going to give this. I shot JR. Sorry, I, I thought we were getting into spoilers. My, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, like, woke up from a dream. I was in the shower. Um, <laughs> the orb but if you think about the fact that Cisco is with the prophets at this time and section 31 is going to try to kill the prophets maybe that's a way for Cisco to re-enter the story and play his role in representing the prophets to overturn what section 31 is trying to do and to champion that idea of druidic 
and and end the season with that message that religion is fine for those who want to believe it, and it's also fine for you not to believe it. Earl Grey. One of my notes I made on this episode is that Riker is a cosplayer. He likes to put on the native costumes of the planets he goes to. Yes. Ewan, I have started making a, a Riker Angel 1 cosplay. <laughs> Ewan, Ewan wants it for SLBs. So. Nice. Yes! That was one of my notes as well, was Riker's left nipple. <laughs> Doesn't leave much to the imagination, but yeah. To the journey! Quick snap poll. Suzanne, would you prefer Neelix yes. to cook for you or Chell? Chell. Chell? Zach, Neelix or Chell? Neelix. Oh. <laughs> oh. I see Leola root in your future. <laughs> Lots of it. Oh, yeah. Give me those exotic ingredients. Yes. Chell is my man. I mean, you can have with Chell. You can get like all those puns, pun food items that he made. <laughs> exactly. It would be like Bob's Burgers in space. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended all right. <laughs>